Hey, everybody. Welcome into the first 2021 edition of the Fantasy Pros Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Harris. You can find me on Twitter at DanHarris80. We've got a great guest to kick us off this year. It's Frank Stample from CBS Sports, host of the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast. You can find him on Twitter at Roto underscore Frank. Frank, thanks for hopping on today. Yeah, no problem, man. Excited to be here. New year, fantasy baseball coming up. Very excited about it. Before you know it, pitchers and catchers. So I'm excited, man. Let's do it. I'm so excited, Frank, because really, I I love football. I really do. Even though you and I were joking before we started, we're both Jets fans. I think we both still love football, of course. But really, after last year, man, I'm just so excited to be looking forward to what I expect. I maybe might be a little delayed. I don't know necessarily when they're actually going to get off the ground, but for the most part, it should be a more normal 2021 baseball season, a more normal 2021 fantasy baseball season. So I don't know about you, man, but like I'm, I find myself so excited about it now that football season's up. Like I'm completely raring to go. Are you with me? Are you like as like pumped as I am right now? Absolutely. 100%. Very excited. Uh, I think at the least, we know that we'll get more than 60 games, so that's automatically yeah. better than 2020. Uh, potential to be delayed, but let's be optimistic, see what happens, obviously. Uh, but I'm excited. Hopefully get uh, some pitchers and catchers soon, spring training, all that fun stuff. So yes, very, very excited for the fantasy baseball season. So today we're going to be talking about some players who are either going to be with uh, new teams this year, either through free agency or trade, and how that change in scenery may impact their 2020 outlook. And then we're going to talk about some New Year's resolutions that we'd like to see. Frank wrote a great article over at CBSSports.com. We're going to use that uh, as our baseline, and everybody should go there and check it out. So, Frank, we're going to start off with the guys who are have seen a change in scenery this offseason and what that might do. But I do want to, before we even get there, ask you a general question that I've gotten from a lot of fantasy baseball managers. And that is, what do you do with what we saw last year? How do you evaluate this weird 60-game season where, you know, players weren't playing in their home parks for the most part? They had this weird preparation, especially pitchers who got going and then had to stop And then got up again, slow starters who didn't have enough time to have their hot streaks happen, right? Players who had absolutely random, abysmal years that you're just, do you, how much credence essentially are you going to give the stats that we saw from the 2020 season? Or is it really specifically dependent on every different situation? Yeah, I think it's the latter there. I think you have to pick and choose and... That's where things get a little bit wonky, but I mean, we're going to have to look at guys who had COVID throughout the season and just completely plummeted like Austin Meadows and Yuan Moncada. And Moncada talked about how it basically affected his energy level all season long. Uh, But then there are also players who had outlier seasons like Salvador Perez, where we have to kind of figure out, you know, who is the real Salvador Perez. And I think we have enough of a sample size to know who he is, but I don't think that means that we just completely brush everything under the rug that he did from 2020. So I think you do have to pick and choose. What I've been doing for a lot of these guys is, for hitters, I've been looking at their last 162 games played, which is not foolproof because if guys had really strong second halves in 2019, then that obviously boosts up the numbers. Uh, Whereas if they had a strong first half in 2019, that's not really factored in because last 162 goes to like basically June 1st of last year. So 
I've been trying to factor in some second half from 2019 into the the 60 game season in 2020. Looking at that for starting pitchers, I've been looking at their last 32 starts, so carry over some of those starts from the second half of last year. Uh, but I mean, there are things to take away for sure. I mean, pitch mix changes from specific pitchers, hitters who change their launch angle, or we saw plate discipline changes. Like you still, I think, have to evaluate every player as you normally would in a full season. You just kind of have to figure out how much you're going to take away from that. So there are players that I am excited about. Like, I like Salvador Perez, for example. I think him having the entire 2019 season off helped him because he basically was an Ironman and he played all the time. And, and there are some stories about how he changed his approach last year, uh, hit a lot of line drives, stack cast numbers were up for Salvador Perez. So you have to pick and choose. It's definitely a, a tough situation. But I think ultimately, you do kind of have to count what we saw last year. Just for the guys that struggled, just don't put too much into it. This is the perfect time to play fantasy baseball, Dan, because <laughs> right. people are overreacting yep. one way or another way too much. I've seen drafts where Zach Plesak goes in the fourth round. I've seen oh. drafts where I like you'll see someone who's Austin Meadows, for example, going in like the 10th or 12th round. Yep. People are just overreacting one way or another too far. You just kind of have to find that happy medium. I think the biggest thing for me, even just as a fantasy baseball player, and I'm sure that people are going to be dealing with this, not not people who are new to the game, but people who have been playing forever, is fighting off confirmation bias. Like, I think of a couple of guys. There are a couple of guys, Frank, I don't know about you, but I always go into it. Now, you know, I look at every stat. I look at the metrics. I look at the stat cast at it. But there are some guys that, in my mind, I just don't want to buy into. I can't even quantify why and a guy for me who's always kind of been on the radar of a guy who I did start buying into and I have rostered for you know the last year or two even before last year was a guy like Javier Baez who when I watched him play forever I just was sort of like this is just I don't I don't want to do this like I, I don't want to buy into a guy who you know has swings this much has this poor plate discipline but he was always getting it done and then last year completely bottoms out right in the 60 game season and I think for me, and I think fantasy managers, the big deal is they're going to have to fight whether or not, is that real? Is that not real? Because I've always kind of been like, this is going to happen eventually. I I know it's going to happen. Maybe I'll roster, maybe I won't. But eventually it's going to happen. And now it happens here. But it's hard to sort of fight through whether or not it's just like, look, it's a 60 game season. Everything went wrong. Who knows if that's going to happen again or whether or not it's, see, this happened. I can finally jump off the ship. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. And this was 60 games, and I wrote an article right after the season ended where if you looked at just the first 60 games of Jose Ramirez and Yu Darvish in 2019, you would have completely written those players off. I mean, yep. Jose Ramirez, you remember, he was he looked completely lost in the first half of the 2019 season, and then he turned things on. Yep. Same thing with Yu Darvish, who we'll talk about a little bit later on now with the Padres. But, I mean, his first, I believe it was 8 to 10 starts with the Cubs in 2019, he was absolutely dreadful. So yep. it's really tough to judge a 60-game sample. I mean, a lot of these guys, I believe, would have turned it around. And Javier Baez, for example, I mean, he just has such a long track record. Yeah. You know, previous two seasons before 2020, he's up over at 840 OPS. So yep. I think he has enough of a track record where we could say, all right, we know he's not a 600 OPS bat. Well, look, you mentioned you, Darvish. So why don't we start with him then for guys who are seeing a change of scenery. He comes over from the Cubs to the Padres. Look, you mentioned it. I mean, basically, since that horrific stretch that he had with the Cubs when he was coming back from surgery, he's been as good as you could possibly be. I mean, last year, 201 ERA, 096 whip, 31.3% strikeout rate. He's basically just been a as dominant as you can be over the second half 
of last uh, since the second half of 2019. He's being drafted right now as a top five pitcher, which seems completely justified to me. So what's your outlook on Darvish this season? And in particular, looking at the trade from the Cubs to the Padres. Yeah, so ultimately, I decided to downgrade him a little bit, and that's only because you have to invest so much in you, Darvish, a second-round pick, and I think it's warranted. I have him as my SP6, just behind Luis Castillo and Aaron Nola. I, I still think Darvish is a really good pitcher. We mentioned the slow start he got off to in 2019. I remember specifically, it was a start against the Marlins, where he walked like seven or eight yeah. guys in mm-hmm. Wrigley Field, and I was watching that start, and I had him on my team, and I was just... I was so close to dropping him. I'm like, this guy's done. Like, he has nothing left. From that point on, he started using this Kiter, uh, cutter slider hybrid pitch more than ever before. Completely changed his arsenal. Relies on that pitch like over 30% of the time. And his last 35 starts, 306 ERA, 094 whip, 11.5 K per nine, 1.5 walks per nine. This is the yeah. best version of you, Darvish, that we have ever seen. So the only reason I'm downgrading him just a bit is because he is changing scenery. So I think the competition is going to be a little bit tougher in the National League West versus in the NL Central, uh, where obviously he got to pick on teams like the Pirates. I don't think the Cardinals lineup is very good. So he had some fortune there. Now he has to face the Dodgers consistently. He has to go into Coors Field. The Giants, I know normally we look at them as a team that's not a great offense. Right. They were really good this past season. So we'll see if we Do can. Do you expect that to continue, Frank? So I think a lot of it has to do with, I don't know if you saw this whole story about their archways being closed in the outfield, Mm -hmm. but basically that stopped the wind from blowing in off the bay and it basically helped the hitters because the ball was traveling further now. So I think that is a large part of it because they were better at home than we've seen in years. So I think that's the storyline that we have to pay attention to. But they have some interesting guys, man. Like Yastrzemski's really good. Um, I don't know if it was just an organizational change with Gabe Kapler, but Basically, everyone's stat cast numbers were up across the board. So I, I am kind of buying into the Giants offense. Maybe not like a top 10 offense, but can they be top half of the league? I think that's possible. So I really do like you, Darvish. He comes over with his personal catcher, Victor Caratini. That helps right. uh, because Car- he was great with Caratini in 2019, great with him in 2020 as well. So I still really like Darvish. I think he's like a top six, top seven starting pitcher, but I have moved Aaron Nolan and Luis Castillo ahead of him. Yeah, it is really hard to to poke holes with. I mean, a four point seven percent walk rate last year. Just I considering, as you mentioned, where he was in that first half of twenty nineteen. Just a remarkable number. You mentioned that pitching out of the central. Remember, I mean, last year with the schedule in particular, it wasn't just the NL central, but he also got to pick on basically the AL central as well for the vast majority of their games. Also, weakening division. So certainly the schedule gets tougher for me, Frank. When I look into it, there's nothing. There's no problems whatsoever, and you wouldn't expect there to be, given how dominant he was last year. His velocity held fine, expected slugging percentage, expected well, but all of it was good. For me, Frank, and this is not as much of a change of scenery type of thing as it is just he's entering his aged 35 season, and he threw 76 innings. So I think really that's a bigger question. Forget about like last year. What do we do with the stats last year? What do you think about pitchers, especially older pitchers and pitchers who have, you know, had arm injuries in the past? What about the jumps that they're going to be taking in these innings last year? Because none of them pitched. I think Lance Lynn led the league with 84 innings pitched, right? So every starter is going to be taking this huge jump. We always worry about innings jumps when pitchers are coming back from injury. So does that worry you whatsoever, especially with a pitcher of advanced age like Darvish entering his age 35 season? No, yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's something you also have to look into. Um, He did pitch 178 and two-thirds back in 2019. He hasn't pitched more than 186 and two-thirds since 2013. So, yeah, this is definitely something we should factor in. And 
Um, remember, you have to invest a second-round pick. If you are not comfortable investing a second-round pick in a 35-year-old pitcher who does have arm injuries and really and has not reached 200 innings pitched since 2013, then you should probably pass on you, Darvish, and look in another direction. But this is something we're going to have to figure out for every pitcher, especially guys that were just called up this year or like the Lazaros of the world, Sixto Sanchez. You know, what's the workload going to be like in this upcoming season? And I think that's where you really just kind of have to follow the news and see what the teams are saying and and, and kind of follow what they've done in the offseason. Uh, but for Darvish specifically, I, I do think that's something that you have to keep in mind for sure. So one other thing I want to ask about before we move on to our next player is you mentioned downgrading based on a change of scenery. I just want to clarify, did you mean in particular because of this change of scenery or are you did you mean that when any player has a change of scenery, because this is something I think about sometimes, any player has a change of scenery that it's almost sort of because of you know, uh, you're leaving what is probably a comfortable situation for a new situation. Any change of scenery, generally speaking, all other things being equal, do you consider that just a minor downgrade regardless? Or was that a particular thing here with the Cubs to the Padres? This might be a cop-out answer. I think it's a little bit of bolt specifically for Darvish because I do worry about the, the change in competition level. He does have to face better lineups now. But, you know, if I'm splitting hairs, if I'm deciding between you know, a Castillo and a U Darvish, then I might use that as a, de- a deciding factor. The fact that he is changing scenery and, you know, he has not pitched in San Diego before. Um, he should still have a really good run support, but, you know, this is something that was in the back of our mind for Garrett Cole last year. And he right. was, you know, largely considered the best pitcher in baseball, but some people were worried there. Hey, he's moving over to Yankee stadium. It's a, it's a change of scenery. It's a smaller park. I mean, there are things to worry about. So I think it's a little bit of both, but, for Darvish specifically, I, I do worry a little bit about the competition he has to face. No, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's something that I always think about. I I always just, I, I use the term variables. Variables are something that I, anytime there's any variable that could affect any player in any way, I always think about it. You know, I do projections both for baseball and football, and I think about that a lot. And yeah, anything that changes, regardless of if it's a positive, great. If it's a negative, not so great. But just being equal, I'd just as soon prefer the player who is staying where he was than somebody who's pitching with a new team, in a new park, in a new environment. It's just something like that I factor in a little bit. So I'm glad to hear it sounds like, I mean, again, cop out, whatever, but it sounds like you you kind of do too, depending on the situation. So just want to clarify that because that is something that I think about. It doesn't, again, for Darvish, this isn't a big change for me in terms of his value. It doesn't sound like it is really for you. Maybe a minor downgrade. Again, the offense is is probably going to be a little better. Defense, pretty on par from, from what I've seen. So just the general change, though, I do think I, I prefer players kind of staying where they are than with the change. But let's get to another player here who's also moving to the Padres, and that's Blake Snell coming over from the Rays. Solid year uh, with the Rays, 324 ERA, 120 whip. Everyone's going to remember, though, the postseason, of course, where he's getting pulled early. He goes from the AL East now to the NL West. So what are your thoughts here on this move? Yeah, so I labeled this one a, a cautious upgrade for Blake Snell, and I do like the fact that he will have uh, better run support. He gets out of the ALE. So this might actually be a competition upgrade. We just saw him dominate the Dodgers in the World Series. He had 18 strikeouts over 10 innings pitched, obviously a super small sample size, but he did look good against them. And we know when Blake Snell is healthy, he is one of the five best pitchers in baseball. I mean, he has really three plus pitches and he had everything working in the postseason. He looked great. And, and he was really good in 2020. 3-2-4 ERA, 1-2-0 whip, 63 strikeouts and 50 innings pitched. The problem is he does not give you volume. 
He averaged just under five innings per start in 2020, and he has not reached six innings in a start since July 21st of 2019. We know that he's dealt with shoulder injuries and elbow injuries. He had a cortisone shot last year. I believe it was back in February, right as spring training was starting to ramp up. So you have all these things in the back of your mind. Um, Ultimately, I think that we could see improvement in the volume. I think that the Padres could push him a little bit more. But at the same time, the, the reason why I call it a cautious upgrade is because there is a method to the madness when it comes to the Tampa Bay Rays. They know how to handle their pitchers. And while it's extremely frustrating for fantasy, they know how to get the, bo- the most out of their guys. So if the Padres push him a little bit more, does that increase the injury risk for Blake Snell? I think it probably does. So I have him ranked as my SP16. I think he's a top 20 pitcher when he's on the mound. But just keep in mind, I, I think that there's a lot of injury risk already built in with him. And the fact that if the Padres push him even more, uh, that, that probably increases that risk a little a, a little bit further. I think that's a really great point because I think that fantasy managers are going to sit here and be like, great. Again, you know, for... I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, say it's it's not sophisticated or anything. But you know, th- there was a lot of pub, of course, around the World Series and the Rays pulling him. And that's one of the things you know how the Rays like to do things. They're very cautious and they don't like their pitchers necessarily going through the order a third time. So I think fantasy managers are going to be thinking about it and be like, well, great, they're going to let him go here. That's going to mean more innings. But I think your point about the fact that the Rays know what they're doing, right? And the Rays are probably acting in a way that's in Snell's best interest. And so in limiting. His innings, that's probably one of the better ways to keep him healthy. Now, again, he only has 157 innings total over the last two years. So that's a little worrisome. 16th, I, I'm in the process, actually, Frank, of doing my my fantasy baseball rankings, getting them up. 16th sounds about right. I mean, I'm just looking at uh, NFBC ADP over the last month because I feel like that's that's pretty there. That's where he is, the 16th starting pitcher. Pick 52, roughly that. So that's, you know, about a fifth round pick right around the fourth, fifth turn. Is that where you'd be looking at him right now in drafts around the four or five turn? Yeah, I'm all right with that with, you know, either my SP2 or SP3 if I if I go starting pitcher heavy early on. But, you know, the reason why I am okay with it is look at the pitchers that are going right around him. It's Tyler Glass now who you probably have similar concerns with. Corbin Burns, we love what we saw this past year. Good luck trying to figure out how to project Corbin Burns' innings this upcoming season because I have absolutely no idea. Yep. Zach Plesak, a lot of people excited about him. Really small sample size. Only eight starts this year. Uh, he should give you volume, but is he going to be as good as uh, on a per-inning basis as he was this past season? Max Fried, I think, is another one where he doesn't really go super deep into his starts. I still really like him. Some of the underlying numbers are a little mad with him as well. So I think that you can kind of pick apart each pitcher that's going in this range. Lots of upside for Blake Snell. I also think there's a lot of downside. And I will just say, much, much better in a roto head-to-head categories format versus a head-to-head points league. Because in the points leagues I play in, you are uh, rewarded for innings pitched, and he is not going to go deep into starts. So that is just, it completely affects his ability to uh, to be even a top 30 starting pitcher, I think, in a head-to-head points league. Yeah, and I think just comparing it with the point you made about Darvish, which is if you have concerns about Darvish, given his age and given everything we talked about, you have other very solid options with little downside. You mentioned Luis Castile. You mentioned Nola. That's great. When you get to Snell's range, like you're talking about, you know, everybody has warts, right? Everybody is there where you're like, I mean, do I feel that much more comfortable with Tyler Glasnow or Corbin Burns, you know, again? So I think that's sort of one of the reasons why I'm not planning to shy away from Snell this year at all, because I do think once you're in that range, yeah, there's nobody who I'm going to feel 
particularly comfortable with as opposed to smell. Whereas if I do have concerns about Darvish, you can easily get away from him and not think that you're taking too much of a downgrade. Let's get to our number three player. That's Lance Lynn, traded from the Rangers over to the White Sox. Again, I mentioned earlier, led the league in innings pitch last year with 84. Basically a top 10 fantasy pitcher, two top uh, two very, very solid years in a row. So what are your thoughts on him going from Texas to the White Sox? So I think there are some positives and some negatives. I'll start with the positives for him, and that's... I think the run support will be a lot better for him in Chicago. And the fact that he has Yasmani Grandal as his catcher, who is yeah. one of the best pitch framers in the league, and someone like Lance Lynn, who relies, relies so much on his fastball cutter combination, he needs to be able to steal strikes and really be able to frame. So I, I think that the fact that he has Grandal, that should that should help him. What hurts him is that last year he allowed fly balls over 40% of the time, and that was a career high, 42.3% fly mm. ball rate. Now he moves over to guaranteed rate field in Chicago, where that is basically, based on what we saw in 2020, it seems like in Texas it's playing more like a neutral, maybe even more of a pitcher's park, and now he's moving over to guaranteed rate field where it is regarded more so as a hitter's park where you know if he's given up this many fly balls, he's probably going to give up more home runs, and, and we kind of see that in his XFIP where ERA is 3.32. The XFIP, which, which, count, uh, which basically counts for, uh, like it normalizes your home run to fly ball ratio. So it's at 4.34. That basically means like if he gave up as many home runs based on how many fly balls he was giving up, that's what his ERA should have been. So there are a few things that I worry about with Lance Lynn. Ultimately, uh, he's a workhorse, six plus innings and 11 of 13 starts, led all of baseball with uh, 84 innings pitched, top 10, both Roto and head to points, this pa- uh, head to head points leagues this past season. I like him as like an, SP2, SP3, I have him right at SP20. He's probably a good pitcher to pair with one of these Snells, Corbin Burns, one of these types, because you don't know what their innings are going to be, whereas you think they're going to be really good on a per-inning basis versus Lance Lynn, where maybe he takes a bit of a step back on a per-inning basis, but he is going to give you a lot of volume. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the fly ball rate because, yeah, before 2019, he was like a 32, 33% fly ball rate kind of guy. Then in 2019, 38.3%. And then last year, as you mentioned, over 42%. And his you know, second worst homer to fly ball rate, 13.8% of his career. That is worrisome going to guaranteed rate. Funny that we're now in a place where, you know, you're you're leaving Texas. You're concerned about the downgrade, right, for a pitcher in the park now that where we are. But, yeah, I agree with you here. It is something where I think you have to balance off a little bit of the fact that Grandal really makes a huge difference with, you know, pitch framing and, and how much he improves any pitcher's stock. So it strikes me as, as kind of because of that roughly neutral. So he's going 19. So do you prefer you prefer Snell, for example, right now to Lynn, right? In a Roto or head to head category? Let's, let's stick with Roto. Let's stick yeah. with Roto. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would take Snell over, over Lance Lynn. Okay. What about Glass now? I would take Glass now over Lance Lynn as well. Okay, because that's about the guys, again, we talked about. It. He's right around the same range in NFPC. It's 58, uh, pick 58 on average. So, yeah, I agree. It, it's it's this weird thing. I, I am a little worried just given his advancing age, given the increase in the fly ball tendencies. But I do think that the addition of Grandal balances that out, better offense. So, you know, he stays about me. And, again, I think a, a, an SP2 I'm completely fine with. Let's go to Rysel Iglesias here, traded from the Reds to the Angels. Really just kind of a... Salary dump 
year, solid year last year, 274 ERA, 091 whip, lowest walk rate of his career, highest strikeout rate of his career. Today is his 31st birthday, actually. So happy birthday to Rysel Iglesias, avid listener of the podcast, of course. What do you think his value is here, Frank, moving from the Reds to the Angels? I think he's rock solid. I think he's a top eight closer option. I think the fact that he moves away from Cincinnati, some people entering last year were concerned because in 2019, he shared some save opportunities and they, they like to use him more in like this multi-ending reliever role, sometimes come in in the seventh or the eighth, whenever the, the heart of the lineup was coming up. So I don't think we'll have to worry about that anymore with Joe Madden. I, I think that he's just going to be the guy for the Angels and uh, he was great this past season. 091 whip. That was the best of his career. He lowered his walk rate. The walks per nine were under two K per nine up over 12. I, I think that he's really just entering his prime and he, this is the best version of, of Rice Iglesias that we've seen yet. I think he's a top eight, eight closer. I have absolutely no problem with taking him. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I'm, I've always liked uh, Iglesias. talent it was great to see what he did last year. And I, I agree. I think getting out of Cincinnati probably only a help for him. I think man's going to deploy him properly. So I agree. Not too much of a difference here. I mean, of course, you know, finding a, a, a closer who you can rely on for saves year in and year out is difficult. And I think, thankfully, Iglesias is one of the few guys that you can draft with absolute confidence. Let's go to Charlie Morton here. He signs with the Braves one year, $15 million deal. Uh, this is kind of interesting to me, Frank Morton. Uh, he's not a good year last year. I mean, you just look at the numbers, 474 ERA, 139 whip. Just 38 innings. Velocity way down when the season started. Then he missed time with the shoulder injury. Came back. Velocity was a little better. And then he has the velocity pretty much back to normal. Has the great postseason 270 ERA, even a better XFIP. He is 37. He always feels like he's on the verge of retiring, which is why he's taking these short deals. So what do you think about Charlie Morton here as he goes to the Braves for the 2021 season? Yeah, this is a tough one for me because I love Charlie Morton entering 2020. I, I basically labeled him the cheat code because you were getting him in the third, fourth round. And I said, if this guy was not 36 years old at the time, you know, if he was 30, he would probably be a top five pitcher drafted based on the numbers that we saw uh, from 2017 to 2019. But yeah, you mentioned the velocity drop. I think that was the biggest issue for Morton. Uh, he dealt with a shoulder injury earlier in the season. Those first four starts, the VLO, 92.5 miles per hour. His final five starts, once he returned after the shoulder injury, 93.9 miles per hour on the fastball. So, all right, starting to tick things back up. In the postseason, he averaged 95 miles per hour on the fastball. So he got enough. Is this because he didn't have a normal ramp up? He didn't have a normal spring training? Things got delayed? Possibly, but he's 37 years old. He is an injury risk. Um, I, I think he could turn out to be one of the better values if he manages to stay healthy and stay on the field. He obviously has great, great run support with the Atlanta Braves. Uh, I think that he is a top 40 starting pitcher. Obviously comes with a lot of risk, a lot of upside as well. But that's like that risk-reward pick where you can get him as sometimes your SP4, maybe even your SP5 if you're really aggressive with starting pitchers. So if you get him as one of those, I'm okay with that. I, I, this is a Dan Harris type of player. I mean, I, I think that fantasy managers just generally come in with uh, a bias against older players, especially those who come off injuries. I mean, last year was a terrible year, right? But over the last four years, a 334 ERA, a 327 FIP, more than a 28% strikeout rate. He gets a ton of ground balls. So last year was bad. But again, as we talked about, he was injured. It was only 38 innings. So if you take out his age, Everyone is kind of writing that decline off, especially with what they saw in the postseason that you cannot take out his age. He's 37. He's got a checkered injury history, but I, I'm not really I'm not writing it off. I'm just, you know, 
we're marking it down from what his original price is. So I mean, he's not a top 20 guy anymore. And I, I agree. I loved him last year. I, I've loved him the last couple of years. But for me, I don't know, Frank, I, if you're going into a fantasy season, and let's say your your top two pitchers are not not elite. OK, you didn't spend your first two picks. Ro- let's talk Roto. You didn't spend your first two picks on pitchers, but your, your starting pitcher is fine. You've got a, a decent number one, a decent number two. Are you okay with Morton as a number three, or is he really just somebody who you're like, I want to get him as my SP4 or my SP5 before I feel really comfortable? Yeah, I probably want him as my SP4 at most, just because I do think that he comes with a lot of risk, especially if you weren't aggressive with with pitchers early. Say you took one in the third and fourth and you had Gallon and Blake Snell. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, I would probably want to dip back into that Zach Wheeler range, Kyle Hendricks, get someone that's a little bit safer just to balance those other guys out. And then that affords me the ability to take someone like Charlie Morton. So SP3, probably a little bit too rich for me in a 12-team league, but SP4, anything beyond that, I can get behind. All right, let's get to Haseon Kim coming over from uh, the KBO to the Padres. Uh, Look, he slashed 306, 397, 523 in the KBO last year. 30 homers. He stole 23 bases. He stole 33 the year before. Uh, look, he's, he's a shortstop, a split time, a little bit between shortstop and third. He'll probably play second here for the Padres. Uh, he's just 25 years old. I mean, that's pretty young for somebody coming over from the KBO because of the service time that they have there before they're able to release. But again, he started really young. I really struggle with trying to figure out how to translate KBO stats over to what they're going to look like or what they, they should look like in Major League Baseball, and that's especially true here because he is so young, so there is so much room for growth here with Kim. So just what's your outlook here on him coming to the Padres? Yeah, so ultimately, I I am pretty excited about him, and the price reflects that as well. I think, you know, we... I looked at the ADP for NFBC from October to November, and he was, you know, around 190, 280p, and now in... In December, he was like right around 175. And I think in January, he's probably going to climb inside the 150. I saw some people talking on Twitter. I think he went like 120 in a few drafts. Yeah. That's that's getting probably a little too rich for a player that we haven't seen perform. Did some research into him. Uh, apparently, the KBO talent level relates to double AA, A, triple A here in the States. So, I mean, if we did have a 25-year-old, he was 24 last year, say he was 24 years old in the minors last year, and he put up the numbers that he did, we, we probably would be pretty excited about him. So he is in the prime age of his career, a little bit younger than, than we normally see some of these uh, KBO guys come over, and great plate discipline, has not struck out more than 14% of the time uh, any year in the KBO, more walks than strikeouts, so I think that helps you regardless of format, if you play in an OBP or in a head-to-head points league, the, the, the steamer projections for him on fan graphs are very, very lofty. So I would probably dial those down a little bit, but can he be a 260 to 270 hitter with 15, 15? I think that's doable. And, you know, if he gains second base eligibility, which he should, that definitely helps the position. So he's not a top 12 guy, but if I can get him as like my middle infielder in that 150 range, I'm okay with it. If he starts to climb towards 100, which that's how it seems like it's trending. That's too early for me. Yeah, his average pick over the last month is 172. But yeah, you mentioned his minimum pick is 118. Like 118, that's just, that's way too early for me to even be thinking about it. I think I agree with you. I think, you know, when you're talking about 15-15, that's probably about what I'll be thinking about him coming in, which is a fine player. It's a usable player for sure, but it's not somebody who you can have as your starting shortstop. I don't think in a mixed league, in a roto league. So as a middle infielder, I'm perfectly fine. He's like, you know, again, because he's shortstop eligible, the 19th shortstop 
off the board. That sounds about right to me. That's about where I'd feel comfortable taking him. But as you mentioned, that ADP is rising. And, uh, you know, 118, nuts. Forget it. You, you can't go near him there. But if he is going to hold at roughly one in the 170 to 180 range, I agree with you. I'd be willing to pull the trigger there. As I get to Josh Bell, goes over to the Nationals from the Pirates, followed up his monstrous 2019 season where he slashed 277, 367, 569 with 37 homers to one where he slashed 226, 305, 364 with eight homers. Strikeout rate was way up. Ground ball rate was way up. Walk rate was way down. He's now entering his age 29 season. New start with the Nationals. What do you think here about this change of scenery? Yeah, admittedly, Josh Bell is a tough one for me to figure out because you're trying to figure out which Josh Bell is the real guy. I mean, before 2019, he, he was a fine player and then obviously broke out. But it was really just those first 56 games through May 31st in 2019 where he hit 343, 18 home runs, in OPS over 1,100 in 144 games since, 229 hitter, 27 homers, 761 OPS, struggles with hitting too many ground balls at times. You know, the strikeouts were up in 2020, 55% ground ball rate in 2020 as well. Still hits the ball really, really hard, but I think you watch him bat and there's a lot of movement in his hands, big leg kick as well. Did you notice, Frank, I felt like last year, every time I watched Josh Bell, it looked like I was watching a different hitter. Like, it was like his, his bat was up. You know, straight up in the air, and then in the next bat, it was resting on his shoulder. And like sometimes you can do that. Cal Ripken, you know, Cal Ripken Jr. did that his whole career, right? He had a different stance every time up. But it was like, okay, one at bat, I'm watching a guy with a, a, a bat held straight up in the air and a big leg kick, and the next at bat, I'm watching somebody with the bat laying on their shoulder and no leg kick whatsoever. It just seemed like he had he had no idea what was going on last year. Yeah, I think that he's probably just confused himself. I think he's trying to figure out the sweet spot for him, and he's trying to get back so badly to that player he was in the first two months of 2019. And maybe the Nationals can help him get there. Obviously, it's it's a great lineup to hit, and he's going to have Juan Soto and Trey Turner ahead of him. So there's going to be lots of RBI opportunities. We know what the upside can be, but I think that there, there are too many factors here in play where I'm going to likely sit out the season and if I'm wrong on Josh Bell then so be it and you know if if it's really good then maybe I'll buy back in in 2021 but I think I need to see him do it first before I buy back in there's just there's been too much all over the place with him yeah and you know look he he tried to offer an explanation you know he said that with the with the strange season where they got ramped up and then they stopped and that he was jumping at the there was an athletic article all about it, that he was jumping at the ball his swing got long he was working out with his father and that you know messed him up as he tried to stay there but again he was just so lost last year now the price i mean the price right now is over the last month he's going at average pick 182 the 20th first baseman off the board I feel like at that point, I'm probably willing to take the risk. Again, you mentioned it again. He, you know, with the Nationals, he's going to be batting behind Trey Turner and Juan Soto. He's going to have every opportunity to sort of get it done. So I feel like at that price, I'm probably willing to do it. But you're saying even there, Frank, even at 182, 20th first baseman, too rich for your blood. Yeah, I wouldn't want him as my starting first baseman. You don't have to take him there. Like, if you're waiting that long to get your starting first baseman, then that's fine. But right. as a corner or as a util bat, I think that's okay. The price is not bad. I mean, 186, right, right around Jared Walsh and Miguel Sano. Walsh, great for a really small sample. Miguel Sano, we kind of know who he is at this point. And so there's a lot of players around here who have their warts. This is probably a fair range to get him in. I, I just wonder if he's going to move up now that he's in the Nationals lineup. We'll yeah. see. If the if the price stays here, then yeah, maybe I can grab a few shares as like a corner infield bat. 
All right, let's talk about James McCann here coming over to my Mets. Four years, $40 million deal. He really kind of established himself as a reliable fantasy option the past two seasons, even at, you know after Guzmán Grandal came on. 789 OPS in 2019, 896 last year. He does strike out a lot. So again, we talked about the difference between points leagues and roto leagues and points leagues. That's going to hurt you a bit with the strikeouts. But what do you think about him coming over to the Mets this year? I like him. I think he's a top 10 catcher. I think he's rock solid. You know, since the start of 2019, you mentioned the past two seasons, he's batting 276, 25 homers, 808 OPS, 116 WRC plus. So he's been a plus bat. Um, people point to the Babbitt, but he's a really high Babbitt guy. He also hits a lot of line drives, and those usually correlate well with batting average on balls in play. So he makes hard contact. You see that in the StatCast data. Uh, over 90 miles per hour average exit velocity each of the last two seasons. So I think he's fine. I think he's probably like a 260 hitter with 15 to 18 home runs and, you know, as solid counting stats as you can get from a catcher. So if I'm waiting, I wouldn't mind him as my catcher one in those middle rounds, whatever. But if you can get him as your catcher two, that's great. But normally I don't invest very much in, in the early round catchers. No, no, neither do I. And I agree. Yeah, where he's going, you know, the 11 catcher off the board. I'm totally fine with that. I mean, he is entering his age 31 season. That's you know, roughly the time that catchers start to kind of decline, but it, he doesn't have that much mileage on him. But really, you think about with the Mets, uh, you know, you look at Wilson Ramos, 524 plate appearances in 2019, 155 last year, those 679 plate appearances, fourth most among catchers, the Mets are willing to roll their number one guy out there every day. So if he gets the additional plate appearances, you know, he had 476 in 2019, 111 last year. If he gets those additional plate appearances in a lineup that should be pretty solid overall, probably bat seventh, then, you know, I think he's pretty, pretty, you know, as long as he still stays healthy, it's not that hard to justify being a top 12 catcher in a roto league. So I think he's got a good opportunity to do it. And I'd be totally fine taking him as my catcher one. But as you mentioned, of course, in a two catcher league, if you can get him there, even better. Let's get to Rafael Montero traded from the Rangers to the Mariners. I mean, other than the eight saves last year, really wasn't anything special. You know, 408 ERA, hard hit rate, and walk rate jumped from his stellar 2019. We can just, I mean, we assume he's going to be the closer here, right, for the Mariners, right, Frank? Yeah, that's basically what's keeping him afloat here. You mentioned 408 ERA, 102 whip. The whip is actually pretty solid over a strikeout per inning. He's fine. He like there's nothing wrong with him at all and he should be the closer there for the Mariners and I think a team that is improving and if they call up some of their young guys maybe they even make a bit of a splash here but we're just looking for closers that we know are going to get saves at this point and he's one of them. So I think by default he's a top 15 guy, probably close to a top 12 closer as of now and there's just so many like moving pieces still. We have to see where like, Trevor Rosenthal lands and Kirby Yates and, and right. Liam Hendricks and you know, whether or not these guys are actually going to be closers for their team. So we just don't know. But the fact that we do know Montero is going to be the guy, I, I think that probably puts him in the top half of the league in terms of closers. So once we do know, though, because I, I agree with you, if you're drafting right now, I think he's I think he's the 14th reliever off the board. Sent totally reasonable to me because, again, you know, we do know or we probably know exactly what's going to happen here. Once we get everybody signing, and let's say you have the usual thing where you've got 22 guys, generally speaking, whatever, that are, all right, these guys are going to be the closer. And then you've got, you know, I don't know, however many situations you have, eight or whatever, that are sort of up in the air. You maybe know, kind of know, you think it's going to be one guy, but you're not really sure. They have very tenuous job security. 
How do you think in the end that once everything, all the dust settles, where do you think Montero is going to be there? Not a top 15 guy, right? He's probably just outside of it. I think he probably sits in that 15 to 20 range where someone you know is probably not going to give you the greatest ratios around a strikeout per inning, but uh, you feel pretty good about the job security there. And there's not really anyone behind him as of now. I believe they have Andres Munoz, who they traded for from the Padres last year. Flamethrower, but coming off Tommy John surgery, we probably won't see him until about halfway through the season. Maybe he can push Montero at some some point, but there's just really not a lot of people behind him. So he probably falls right outside that that top, you know, 15. He's going to be in that like 16 to 20 range. But as your second closer in a roto league, I think he's perfectly fine. All right, let's get to our last change of scenery guy here, and that's Dane Dunning, who goes from the White Sox to the Rangers in the Lancelin trade. This is a pretty interesting guy to me, Frank. I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. He missed the entire 2019 season after Tommy John surgery. He had seven starts this year for the White Sox, but it's almost like a tale of two seasons a little bit here, just in terms of, you know, his pitch mix and all of that. So what are your thoughts here on Dunning going to the Rangers? You know, I've got to say, Dan, for every question that you've set up, you basically have my notes that I have for myself. I don't, I didn't tell you, Frank, but I hacked your computer prior to us recording and I just have them right in front of me. No, I mean, look, when we talk about these guys though, it is, I mean, Dunning sort of sticks out. He's a very interesting guy in particular, but when you looked at him, because he only made seven starts, you can really dig into each start, right? You can't always do that with every player, but you look into his start and it's bizarre sort of what happened. So, okay, I'm not going to steal your notes anymore. If that's what you were going to say, talk about it, please. No, no, I, I say like, I'm, I'm happy that that validates what I'm thinking here, but it, you're absolutely right. It was the first three starts for Dunning 17 and a half percent swinging strike rate. And he uses slider 28% of the time. And then it was his final four starts where the swinging strike rate dropped all the way down to 6.9%. And he's, and he uses slider only 17% of the time. So I think that slider is a really, really good pitch. Uh, I just wonder if the White Sox were telling him throughout the season, like, hey, you know, this is your first time in the majors. You're a rookie, um, was coming off Tommy John surgery. We want you to take it easy. Pitch more to contact so you can go deeper into your starts. If that's something that they were telling him, then, of course, it's going to limit his ability to generate swinging strikes and generate strikeouts in general. So I wonder if he moves over to Texas, they kind of unleash him now. They let him throw that slider a little bit more, and we see the strikeouts get back to where they were, maybe not in those first three starts. I mean, a 17.5 swinging strike rate would be massive. It would be insane for him. But uh, there is a lot to like about Dane Dunning, and he is one of my favorite late-round starting pitcher targets. Great minor league track record, 49 starts in the minors, 274 ERA, 113 whip, 300 strikeouts across 266 innings pitched. So he has the pedigree, minor league track record supports it, First couple of starts looked really, really good. Change of scenery. I think this is one of those change of sceneries that can actually help him. Uh, he is a prime late-round starting pitcher target for me. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I Really, that's what it was. I mean, you look at the slider. Slider's a great pitch, all right? A last year, uh, you know, 135 batting average against, 118 expected batting average against, 239 Woba against, 186 expected Woba against. A great pitch. First three starts, 28.8%, 26.6%, 28.4%. So he's throwing it more than a quarter of the time. Last four starts, 19.2%, 21.6%, 11.5%, and 15.6%. He just stopped, and he started throwing his changeup more, and it just was not working. And he was 
nearly as much as the slider was. So really, if it really depends, though, on what this was. If this was the White Sox basically saying exactly what you thought, like, look, you're a starter now, you're in the big leagues, you got to get more innings out of it, throw these other pitches. If the Rangers stick with that, he's far less intriguing. But if he leans into his slider, which is just a great pitch, and he keeps doing sort of what he was doing at the start, then yeah, I like him. But I'm very intrigued by Dunning. And I think fantasy managers, the big thing is look past the surface numbers, which weren't terrible. Like overall, his numbers last year weren't terrible. He did have a a very soft schedule when you look at his opponents. I mean, the Royals twice, the Pirates, the Tigers, the Indians, the Cubs face the Twins once. So a lot of soft uh, opposing offenses, but still look underneath the hood a little bit with what it was. And you can do that with a lot of guys last year because there were so few innings. But especially with a guy like Dunning, who only had seven starts, look at the way things changed. There's a lot of untapped potential here, especially when you look at the minor league track record. So, okay, I'm going to put away your notes, but I am going to look at your article now, Frank, because I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. Like we were going to talk about, hey, let's have some New Year's resolutions. That was just sort of part of our show notes before even thinking about it with Frank, before we even knew Frank was going to be the guest on this show. And Frank just sort of casually like, oh, I wrote an article about just that coming up. And I read the article. I was like, well, this is just better than anything I'm going to do. So what we're going to do instead is just go through Frank's article instead, because it's really well written. So New Year's resolutions, sort of whether it's a player or a team, tell everybody a little bit about Frank, the article, and then let's, let's start with your number one. Yeah. So I think this is just a fun exercise, right? And and selfishly, I kind of looked into players or teams that I am very interested in and things that I would like to see them do differently uh, for the new year. So it's a very popular time. People want to get into fitness and they have their resolutions, things they want to do differently. And, you know, instead of just coming up with resolutions for myself, I figured I I would come up with resolutions for the players that I like most. Did you actually come up with any resolutions for yourself this year, though? No. None? <laughs> I'm not really. Uh, so I'm not a big resolutions guy just because I think that if you want to make a positive change in your life or any any type of change, really. And this is like me diving in. I don't think that you need to the new year to be able to do it. I think that you could probably do it at any point throughout the year. So that's just how I feel about resolutions. Frank, that was way too serious. You got to do something like, yeah, I'm going to eat more cake this year. That's my resolution. OK, more cake. For I got Dad. some apples next to me right now. So. You're too healthy, Frank. Eat cake or something. I don't know. All right, look, let's get into the Frank. It was a very fun article. So why don't we start? I'll start with your number one, and then you can talk about it. Your number one resolution is Keston Hira to make more contact. Go ahead. Yeah, so he led the National League in strikeouts this past season with 85. His 20.3% swinging strike rate was second in all of baseball among qualified hitters behind only Luis Robert. So the strikeouts are an issue. And, and, you know, they were an issue as a rookie. He had 30, 30% strikeout rate, and then it went up this past season in the shortened season. But I do think that there is hope. And I really pointed to another player who is, you know, maybe not a prospect to the same level, but he's also considered a top prospect. And, and that was Austin Riley, who, when he first came up in 2019, took the league by storm. He's hitting home runs, 14 home runs over his first two months he's here, and then just completely plummeted because of the strikeouts. Wound up with a 36% strikeout rate overall in 2019 came back in 2020, made the necessary adjustments. We saw the swinging strike rate drop 6% for Riley. Strikeout rate drops all the way down to 23.8%. So yes, I am excited about Austin Riley this year, but this also gives me hope that if he can do it, I think that Keston Hira is talented enough. You look at the minor league track record where um, he uh, Hira struck out 21% of the time. Um, actually, yeah, it was 21% of the time, over 965 minor league plate appearances. I think that he can... Get that back below 30%. And if he does that, we see the batting average get up 
back around, you know, 250, 260. We don't need him to be much better than that. If he is, that's perfectly fine. But if he's a 250, 260 hitter with close to 30 home runs and 10 steals from the middle infield, that's great. So uh, I still really like the player, Kesson Hira, and I have faith that he can get those strikeouts down. If he gets it down to the still bloated 30.7% that he had in 2019, because he had a, an awesome season with the Brewers from when he was there. I mean, he batted 303, of course. If he got it down to that range again, would you be optimistic about his prospects this year? Or do you really think he needs to basically improve? Because I think most most fantasy managers expected the 30.7 number to go down heading into last year because of his minor league track record. If he just gets it back to basically his 2019 levels, are you okay with that? Or do you think he needs to get even more to really kind of break out here? Yeah, I think he has to get it below 30% for him to really, really hit like his 90th percentile outcome. And then maybe we see the batting average even creep closer to like 270, 280, just because he was making really, really strong contact in 2019. When he hit the ball, it was, it was really hard contact. That took a bit of a step back in 2020. So we knew he was never going to have a BABIP up over 400 like he did in 2019. That dropped all the way down to 273. So he's not if he's not impacting the ball as hard, he needs to, to further that strikeout rate even lower. So um, ideally, I would like to get it below 30%. But even if he just gets back to 30%, I think we're probably looking at a 240 hitter. All right. Resolution number two, let your players run more, White Sox. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, so steals we know are the most scarce category in fantasy baseball, and they're really hard to predict. And and most of the time they are, they're a stat that it that is driven by uh, it's just how much does a player want to do it, or how much does a coach want to do it. it. It's more so a fundamental thinking than actually being really fast, because we know that there are players in the league that are really fast that still just don't run as much as they should. So. The White Sox, if you look at the past four seasons under Rick Renteria, they ranked 20th or lower in steals in three of those four seasons. And we know that things can change very quickly. If you look at the Padres, what they did in 2019 versus 2020, 2020, they led all of baseball in steals. And that was under manager Jace Tingler. So he came in and he wanted to run more. So I think if Tony La Russa actually wants to run more, we do have a large track record of data for Tony La Russa. His Cardinals teams didn't run as much back in the 2000s, but if you look at his roster, he didn't really have guys that would run, although Pujols would steal like 10 to 15 bases yeah. randomly those seasons. Uh, but if you look back in his days, way back in the 80s, 90s with the Oakland A's, of course, Ricky Henderson helps the steals totals there, but uh, he did let his guys run. So I I'm hopeful that if the White Sox just let their guys run, they have enough talent there. Tim Anderson, Yuan Moncada, um, Luis Robert, if they let these guys run, I, I think that we could see potentially 20, 20 to 25 steals out of each of those guys. So um, that, that selfishly, this is just something that I'm looking forward to because I really like this White Sox lineup, and I, I think that there's some untapped potential with their base running. Yeah, I get it. No one's holding you to it. Don't worry. I mean, I hope that they do, especially Moncada, who I really think has just the potential to be like an absolute superstar if he just gets more activity on the base pass. Now, the next one, I don't know. I mean, you're going to we're really going to need to to let Victor Robles know about this one because it's hit the ball harder. Victor Robles, go ahead. Yeah, so this one is a little bit tougher because we have a pretty big sample size now that since 2019, his average exit velocity has been quite bad. It was 83.3 miles per hour in 2019, 82.2 miles per hour in 2020. League average is right around 88 miles per hour. But we, if you look at his, his uh, max 
exit velocity in 2020, it was 109.2, which was the same number as Boba Shett. It was better than guys like Anthony Rendon and Trevor Story and Nolan Arenado. And if you just watch the guy play, I think that we know there is a lot of talent when it comes to Victor Robles. And I've seen times where he does hit the ball extremely hard. And I've also heard that his exit velocity is lower than most people because he bunts a lot. So that's something that I actually have to research a little bit more. Uh, But that would absolutely make sense. Uh, I just still think that if he consistently hits the ball a little bit harder, eventually makes his way up the lineup, that we could see that breakout season from Robles. And people are really down on him entering uh, 2021 because of what he just did. So if he can do that, I think that we we can still get that 20 homer, 30 steal season out of Robles, which would just be massive. Yeah. I mean, again, he had 17 homers, 28 seasons, 28 steals the year before in 2019. And he didn't hit the ball particularly hard then. In your article, I think you have it right, is that you don't need Robles to become a power hitter. You just need, he just needs to make harder contact more consistently, right? Because his average exit velocity and his av- and his barrel, I mean, a 1.7% barrel rate last year is just, that's, that. I don't know. I'll, I'll get out there, I'll pro- right? You and I could probably do better than that. Just crazy. But he only had a 4.8% barrel rate the year before. So that's not good either. You know, there's 6.4% of the MLB average. So yeah, if he could just do that, you're right. Because again, the 2019 StatCast data is not good. Still 17 homers, 28 steals. So if he can just sort of get back to anything close to normal, he can really have a monster season. All right, let's get to the next one. Bet, have better luck, Nick Castellanos. So I, I'm sure Nick Castellanos does not have control over this one, but go ahead, make your case. Yeah, this one is admittedly, it's tongue in cheek. It's not really his fault, but uh, I would love for him to have better luck because I've already kind of proclaimed him this year's Marcelo Zuna, because I think the underlying metrics, the StatCast data that we have, uh, it's very similar situations where Ozuna struggled in 2019, but the underlying metrics were fantastic. So if you were buying that, you reaped all the rewards of Marcelo Zuna in 2020. And I think the same thing can happen for Nick Castellanos, 82nd percentile or better in exit velocity, hard hit rate, expecting expected slugging, and barrel rate among 23 qualified hitters with a 25% line drive rate or better. Castellanos's 257 BABIP was the lowest among that group. So uh, I do think if we just get a little bit luck here, um, he gets back to like the 270 hitter he was. Obviously, it's a great ballpark to hit in. Uh, I thought we saw some of that power potential this season. I think we can get like a 270, 30 homer, 90 plus RBI season out of Castellanos. He will absolutely smash his current ADP. Yeah, he batted 225 last year, but his expected batting average was 273. I mean, this is something where have better luck, just sort of have average luck, right? And he's going to be a monster. I love the call with Ozuna. I think that's a great sort of comp that we can hopefully look forward to with Castellanos, who's one of my favorite guys, and he was coming into last year with the move to Cincinnati. Final one, and I think this is one that everyone can get behind, and that's hit fewer ground balls, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, I had to finish the article with, everyone's just begging for it to happen. Is it going to happen? I'm not entirely sure. I read a quote from Dante Bichette, who's one of the hitting coaches on staff for the Blue Jays, where he said, we don't need to have Vlad raise his launch angle. He's perfect where he actually, well, I don't think he's perfect where he is. You know, he's been a 778 OPS hitter to this point, and, and we were expecting um, much better. And I'm sure Vlad has was expecting much better out of himself as well. And we get these glimpses of when he does lift the ball he is as strong as anybody in baseball. So, you know, he's been up over 50% ground ball rate consistently. If he just gets that down to 45%, 
if he increases automatically those five that five percent is going to go to either line drives or fly balls hopefully not infield fly balls right but if it, if it goes to line drives and fly balls the fact like the way that he impacts the ball 92.5 mile per hour average exit velocity uh, a 50 percent hard contact rate both of those ranks 93rd percentile or better i mean there's no doubting he hits the ball extremely hard the problem is a lot of the time he's just hitting it right into the ground. So you've heard it once, you've heard it a million times. If he lifts the ball more, we could see maybe not that breakout season yet. I think we could get closer to it. 280, close to 30 home runs, really good counting stats. I think a lot of people would sign out, uh, sign up for that out of Vlad. It just starts with hitting less ground balls. All right, so let's get to the million-dollar question here and we'll end on this because I, I do want to know, you are a, you know, a fantasy analyst, whatever you want to call yourself, you are well-informed. You play a lot of fantasy baseball. We know everything that we've seen with Vladdy. We are hoping that he is able to improve on this ground ball rate. And you mentioned 45%. Is that kind of your magic number if you think he gets that? Because again, he was 49.6% in his rookie year. And we were all like, oh man, just improve on that, please. And then he went all the way to 54.6% last year. So is 45%, first of all, kind of the magic number that you're hoping that he can get to? I hope he can get there. Do can I say with any confidence that he will? I, I can't because I just I don't know if he's going to do that. But if we see him uh, consistently lifting the ball in spring training, he did lower the the fly ball rate each of the months that as the season went on, mm-hmm. July, August, September. Uh, I think if that continues to trend, forty five percent would be ideal. Is it going to happen? I can't really say. But if he did, I do think that we can we can see that close to a breakout season from Vlad. Yeah, forty five percent. And hence the million-dollar question. He's at a 55 or a 56 ADP over the last month on NFBC. Are you going to draft him at that price tag, given how much potential he has? I will have a lot of baseball teams this season, and I will have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. on at least one of them because I know what the upside can be. So am I going to target him in all my drafts? Is he my number one target at first base? No, I think guys like Anthony Rizzo and Paul Goldschmidt are boring and they're super undervalued. So I'm going to lean towards those guys. But yes, I will have Vlad on at least one of my teams this season. I think that is the exact right way to play it. That's how I like to do it too. Even guys, I don't believe it because you you just don't want to have that season, right? You don't want to see that magical season happen where everything falls perfectly and you were just like, oh, the value wasn't there. So I couldn't get him anywhere. Get get a share. Get one share. Up your number of leagues that you play in. Make sure you get at least one share, Vladdy. I will as well. But uh, I'm I'm not quite as optimistic. You know, I'm not quite optimistic. It doesn't sound really like you are. We're just hoping that he improves on the ground ball percentage. But if he does, oh, he's going to be such a monster. So I really hope so for his sake, for the Blue Jays' sake, for our sake as fantasy baseball managers. All right. That's going to do it, Frank. I, it was so great to have you on and, and hear your insight and sound... I, to have confirmation bias, basically, because it sounds like we feel uh, similarly about a lot of players. Remind everybody where they can find all of you and your great work. Yeah, you can listen to me on Fantasy Baseball Today, the podcast for CBSSports.com. And with myself and Scott White and Chris Towers is joining the mix again here in January. You can find my writing over at CBSSports.com slash fantasy. You click on the little baseball tab. You'll find my rankings there as well. So everything over at CBSSports.com. And of course, the podcast is Fantasy Baseball Today. And again, don't forget, if you want to view this podcast or if you ever want to view any of our stuff, just go to YouTube.com, search for Fantasy Pros MLB. All of our podcasts should be up on there, and we're going to do a ton of videos going forward. Uh, We'll be back next week with another episode, and uh, I will talk to you then.